This program is a production of Restoring the Core, an initiative designed to assist those wishing to go deeper into classic Christianity, with resources available in a connected age, online at RestoringTheCore.com. This is the Lens of Glory, Class Session 6. Welcome to the Lens of Glory, a program dedicated to demonstrating that the Bible can be read through the lens of the glory of God. I'm Walter Hampel. This and all of the programs in this series of podcasts were recorded during Sunday School at Troy Christian Chapel in Troy, Michigan, the United States of America. The purpose of this class is to demonstrate the linkage between Jesus Christ and the glory of God as found in the Bible. Since the Bible shows us that it is written about and centers on Christ, the Bible also can be read with a viewpoint or lens, where we see that the glory of God is a dominating theme of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. A Christ-saturated Bible must also be a Bible which is filled with the glory of God. The following is the audio for this class session. I want to talk about the glory of God and God's actions. We did briefly go over the account of God telling Moses what he was going to do with Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. You may recall the reading last week. God says, I will gain glory for myself by what I'm going to do to Pharaoh and to the Egyptian army. And God comes out specifically and says, I hardened his heart, and I did this for the purpose of my glory. Some people might have a hard time wrapping their arms around that, but it's there. I do that and said, work for Pharaoh. And so, what was that? No, Pharaoh was obviously already a bad guy up to that point. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, when he, had, I, I always wonder how you interpret that he hardened his heart. What he, I did think he not actually do something, or did Pharaoh just already on that path? I think it's both. I, I, I understand it's both. That um, God is the one who hardened his heart, but Pharaoh is also the one who freely hardened his heart as well. So I don't see this in either, or I see this in both things. We have God gaining glory in the Israelites crossing over the Jordan into the promised land. I'm going to move this coffee. I'm dreadfully fearful I'm going to spill it on my keyboard. Uh, if we turn to Joshua chapter 4, verses 15 through 24, I want to show you a passage. The word glory is not specifically used here, but I believe the concept is here. Let me read this. This happens just after the Israelites have crossed over the Jordan or through the the now dry bed of the Jordan River, crossing over into Canaan in, in a miracle that resembles very much what happened when the Israelites 40 years earlier crossed through the Red Sea. In this case, the Jordan River stopped up. And the, uh, there were some priests, Levitical priests, who were holding the Ark of the Covenant, standing in the middle of the Jordan Riverbed. And the Ark's not an easy thing to carry. I mean, when you figure out the, the weight of the gold and all of that, it's, it's taking four hefty guys in order to hold this thing. So the people cross over, and God says, okay, it's time to come out now. However, here's, a, here's what's going to happen in the midst of this, now the people have already crossed over. Then the Lord said to Joshua, command the priest carrying the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And the priests came up out of the river carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground and the waters of Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stage as before. On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, What do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. 
The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he did at the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful so that you might always fear the Lord your God. So consider what's going on here. There were 12 stones taken out of the midst of the Jordan. Now, the Jordan at this time of year was in flood stage. Uh, again, well, rain and snow that would have come down from mountains. Because this is basically the beginning of springtime when they're entering into the land. So the Jordan's not just this little creek that if you get good riding start, you might be able to hop over and you're there. It's like, mm, not as much. It's, it's, it's wide. You're not, God in a sense is making it as difficult as he's going to make it to get over the Jordan. The water stopped up miraculously, and 12 stones are taken out of the midst of the Jordan. They're there to act as a memorial for the people of Israel, so that in generations to come, somebody can point out, saying, you see these 12 stones here in this pillar? They were in that river over there, like at the bottom, in the riverbed. And this is a testimony of what God did for us. But notice what is said here about why this is done. It says in verse 24, he did this, God did this, so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. This is not being done only for the benefit of the Israelites. What God is doing is that in his actions, he wants his name to be known, not just by a little group of people here and there. He wants his name to be known throughout the world, throughout the nations. And this really caught my attention when I read this, going, okay, wait a minute, this, this wasn't just a local memorial. This is something that the whole earth was supposed to be talking about. And if you think about it, you may have heard this before, the placement of Israel among the continents is that it acts as a land bridge for three continents, Europe, Africa, and Asia. So. If God places you, let's say, smack in the middle of a bridge, he must have a reason for doing that. And the reason being is that as commerce would happen, as campaigns of conquest would happen, as people were going through the area, all of them are passing by the people who can tell them about the one true God. And that knowledge, and it's God's way of putting his people in the place so that his name would be known throughout the earth. I don't know if you ever thought about this. If you go back a few chapters earlier in Joshua, you find Rahab. If you remember Rahab who uh, shelters the two spies, she talks about how what happened to the Israelites was well known to their people. This didn't happen in isolation. And God wanted the account of this to be known to the people. So here's God's way of spreading his fame and his glory and setting up these 12 stones by a riverbank was not just supposed to be a memorial for the Israelites. It's supposed to be something that the world is supposed to take notice of. So just some thoughts there. Let's go to the next one. God looking to his own interests in forgiving Israel's sin. And let's go to what I dare say, if, I don't, if you don't mind me dragging you into this, Sharon. One of your favorite books of scripture? Isaiah, yep. I've heard, I, I've heard uh, Sharon mention before how she and John would go through large sections of Isaiah, and it was just such a blessing and a comfort to them at many times. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 22 through 25. The Lord says, Yet you have not called upon me, O Jacob. You have not wearied yourselves for me, O Israel. You have not brought me sheep for burnt offerings, nor honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with grain offerings, nor wearied you with demands for incense. You have not bought fragrant calamus for me, or lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me. What, what did we burden the Lord with? Our, our sins and wearied me with your offenses. 
Okay, so, so far, the resume of Israel is not looking too good here. It's not like you brought everything on time, you brought the Passover lamb, you brought the other thing. No, just the opposite. What you have burned God with is your sin and your offenses. However, verse 25, we read, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions. Why? For my own sake and remembers your sins no more. So when God is taking action, he's doing it for his own sake. It's not he's, that his first thought is, well, I'm going to forgive your sins for your sake. That's true, but that's not what he's saying here. The, re the reason he's primarily doing this is for his own sake, implicitly for his own glory. We have God looking to the interests of his holy name and taking action to defend it among the nations. And let's go to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 16 through 23. I have a question about this. Yeah, please go ahead. What would the difference be between sin and offenses? There may be an underlying difference in the word that's used in the Hebrew text. I'm not sure. Uh, oftentimes in Hebrew poetry, a concept is repeated. Mm -hmm. For example, we, okay, let me use probably the most simple English poem base we've ever heard. Roses are red, violets are blue. Da da da, and so are you. I mean, it, 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 okay, the, the, the implicit line, you know, fill in the blank. I don't know. Blah, 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 so are you. Anyway, we, we use sound rhyme in order to make a point in English poetry. In this case, it's a repetition of ideas. Uh, I was trying to think of another example of where you can find. So it's essentially the same thing, but it's maybe a poetic it's license, same, if you will, to be able to expand on. Yes. The concept that a sin and an offense is, is, a, is a similar concept, but yet they're a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, I mean, it'd be like somebody saying, you've made a number of mistakes, you, your, errors. Your, errors, your errors are numerous. Right. It, it would be the same kind of idea that yeah. the idea is being repeated. No, good question. So be poetic emphasis rather than It is a poetic emphasis. And think about how many times we'll use poetic emphasis mm -hmm. in our language rather than just making straight facts, you know, metaphors, similes, points of poetry, things like that. So it's, it's God's way of communicating the point doubly to the people. You've offended me. So, no, good question. Let's be clear. <laughs> Ezekiel, chapter 36, almost there. For as much as I love new technology, I could not navigate a Kindle or an iPad faster than I can navigate a paper Bible yet. I was just thinking about that a few days ago. Uh, glad we still have paper. Um, I use both. Let's see, we're 36. Can I find it? No, 36, 16 to 23. Okay, here we go. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. So I poured out my wrath on them because they shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations, and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name, for it was said of them, These are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, This is what the sovereign Lord says, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord. When I show myself holy through you... Sure, please go ahead. In previous uh, studies, uh, the, the next few verses are the ones that I had uh, starred and had <coughs> underlined that, quite a bit because uh, you know, it, it goes on to say in verse 24 that I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water, I'll cleanse you from the filthiness of your idols, 
I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So that, to me, that's even more powerful in terms of what he's doing for us. But that, that passage there is, is a really uh, you know, important prophecy, you know, I think, and, uh, yeah, and for all of us today, especially when he speaks of putting my spirit in you. I mean, that's something that I think most Christians don't still quite understand. I, I would agree. Uh, the idea that the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that took Jesus, the, the corpse of Jesus Christ after his death and gave him and resurrected that body to eternal life, and it's, I think Paul says that in Romans, the same Spirit resides within believers. And just trying to grasp that is just it's staggering. And also, how God is saying he's taking the initiative on these things as opposed to, you know what, we're going to claw our way up to God. Because that's, that's the nature of every other human religion. Is it's basically our, the concept of grace, that he's doing this because he's doing it. We don't, there's nothing we can do to facilitate it, really. I mean, it's, it's his by his design. That's true. And in the Old Testament, you know, he would remove his spirit. And now in the new, in the new era, since Christ, he gives you your Holy Spirit. And it's, it's there. He doesn't take it back from you. And the profuseness of the Holy Spirit's being given, as opposed to like you're saying, Randy, in the Old Testament, there's scattered references to those who were filled with the Spirit. Mm -hmm. uh, Bezalel and Holyab, two of the... Uh, uh, men who worked on the design for the initial tent yeah. of meeting at the time of Moses. You have David. Um, you have this really bad, I'm trying to think of the right word for it, scary uh, reference to Saul, mm -hmm. King Saul, yeah. being given the spirit and how God withdrew his spirit from him. It's just frightening to read that. Uh, but and what replaced it was an evil spirit, really. I mean, because yeah. God removed it. It allowed. I don't. I don't understand the concept necessarily that Satan came even stronger or something. But anyway, because God's spirit was removed from him as his leader, there are serious things happened. Yes. When Jesus, well, David said in Psalm 52, "Do not remove your spirit." Yeah. Right. And confessing his sin, don't let it be so bad that you remove your spirit. But the idea about God looking to the interests of his holy name is that, again, let's say you have someone who is a member of an esteemed family, but they're the, they're the rogue. You have one kid who's the rogue, the black sheep. And he goes around saying, yeah, I'm a member of so-and-so's family. You, you know the one that you really respect and think well of? Well, I've done a whole bunch of evil things, and he'll maybe go through the list. And it's like, well, good way of dragging your family name through the mud. And what God is saying here, in essence, is, okay, look, let's, let's recap history. You do idolatry in the land I give you, I throw you out of the land. Rather than saying, whoop, we sin, we continue to profane your holy name in the places where I put you to exile. I'm not going to let this continue to happen. I, I, the Lord, am going to protect my own holy name because, in essence, you've dragged it through the mud. And God is working for the benefit of his own holy name and not letting it be, to use the term, dragged through the mud or worse, in terms of his reputation. He had his own reputation to preserve despite the fact that his people weren't doing the job of defending his reputation for him. Julie? This is the verse that I use. Is my argument that people should not have Christian bumper stickers on their car. <laughs> uh, yeah, there, there can be moments of weakness. There can be moments of weakness, and uh, yeah, you don't want to greet somebody with uh, only one finger as opposed to five. Uh, <laughs> you want to go into exile. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's why I don't do that. <laughs> I want to point out a few areas in which the purposes of God 
in terms of the glory of God are Trinitarian. Uh, we've kind of covered a little bit of this before, but I, I want to go through a few more of these ideas. Uh, this was really enforced to me in the last week, and I'll tell you why in a few minutes. You have the Father glorified by the Son. And if you take a look at, again, Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 11 to 13. And just to show you how paranoid I am, okay, I just want to make sure, I want to make sure the plug is still in place. Okay, uh, John chapter 14, verses 11 through 13. The Lord Jesus says, Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. I want to center in on this specifically because Jesus is saying that when you ask in his name, it brings glory to the Father. And it's the Son, doing something in the name of the Son, when you're doing anything in the name of someone else, you're doing it with their authority, you're doing it, in a sense, as if you were them. So, I mean, for example, uh, maybe an old hackneyed thing where a policeman might be trying to stop somebody running down the street after committing a robbery and says, stop in the name of the law. So it's not, stop in the name of John Smith, your local beat cop, stop in the name of the law. So you're actually doing this, saying, I'm doing this in the authority of the law. Here's Jesus saying, when you pray in my name, you are doing this as if you're praying through the mouth of Jesus himself. In the name of Jesus, it's basically Jesus himself. And that what do you think Jesus gets when he prays to the Father? He gets an answer, and he gets and he's and the Father is glorified by the prayer of the Son. So we have these two persons of the Trinity in which glory is being extended from one to the other. Yeah, Julie. Yeah, but some people use this kind of as their formula for, okay, as long as I'm asking in the name of Jesus, God has no choice but to do it. But like now that I'm reading this through the lens of glory, is it possible that the things that he's going to, that he will do in his Father's name are the things that you're praying that will bring God glory. Absolutely. I mean, I mean think about, uh, let, me, let me use a safe sin to talk about as opposed to some unsafe sins. Um, you know, somebody saying, uh, oh, okay, let me, okay, let me grab a third rail, I'll, I'll talk about some unsafe sins. Let's say you had a Christian teenager who said, oh, Lord, here's a really beautiful girl who's in my third hour classroom. I want to have a date with her, and I want to be able to have passionate, wild sex on the weekend. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> you, think God, you think God the Father is going to look kindly on a prayer like that? Obviously not. Or somebody saying, oh Lord, I, I wish to win the lottery for your glory. <laughs> because all that money that I win, I can tell people, God's the one who helped me win the lottery. Um, I don't know that a prayer actually is like that is glorifying to God. Uh, yes? The way I look at it, if, like we said just a minute ago, if his spirit is our spirit, then his spirit will only ask for things that are consistent with his will. So, that's therefore, he will answer because there are things that he would want to do anyway, or would do. Does that make sense? So, Absolutely. So, so we're, we're, yeah, the, the key thing is to start with the assumption that we are uh, born again of you know, water and the spirit, and we, we are, his spirit is in us, and therefore we will not act out of his will, and, and we will ask for things that are consistent with what he would want. 
So that's that's the way I interpret that. Exactly. Yes, Rose. Well, if you're praying for someone like you want them to become a Christian, mm -hmm. I think surely this is God's will that you know this person would be saved, and yet they don't get saved. Mm -hmm. Or if there's someone who's ill and you pray for them, you know surely God you know heals the sick, but not this time. So, you know, that scripture always got me to the point where it's not all the time that he will answer if you ask it in his name. And that's going to, how do I put this? When you are praying, things may happen at times different from what you expect. Or, for example, there are some branches of Christianity. I mean, Reformed Christianity would probably be one of them. I think Luther, some Lutheran and another. They would hold that it may not be God's will for every last individual on earth to come to salvation. They want the, the message of salvation out there, but not necessarily that in God's will, he's going to allow some people to go their own way and remain in their sin. That, that's one view. Um, in the case of, let's say, you've got St. Augustine back in the 5th century. His mother, Monica, was praying for his conversion for 20 years. And think about how much perseverance that takes. I, I don't know if there's anything, any one thing I've been praying for consistently and specifically over the last 20 years. And yet Monica did it, and her son came to faith. So did he come to faith? At like moment zero when she started praying, obviously not. Took a lot of time, a lot of prayer. Again, why in God's will would it be that much of a delay? Don't know. In terms of healing, I don't know. Uh, I, there's there are some who will. There are some branches of Christianity will hold that physical excuse me physical illness should never be a part of a Christian's life. And as a result, when illness comes, if there's a prayer given, seemingly there should be an instant answer given. But we know from our own experience, that's not always the case. There are times when, when a healing does happen. And it's, again, it's God's sovereign will as to why the direction of these things go the way they do. And it, it, in that sense, it can be a mystery to us, but we're still instructed to pray and in faith that God will answer in the way that God desires to answer, even though if it's a little perplexing to us as to how all that shakes out. Sharon, did you have your hand up? Yes, I, I, in, not just in response, but the passage that helps me is the one in John where, where Mary and Martha sin for Jesus, for Lazarus' sake. I mean, they go to the physical person and make petition to him, come. The Lazarus, whom you love, is dying, is sick. And Jesus loves Lazarus. Obviously, he wept when he, when he got there. But he waited for God's glory. Because what was going to happen, what he was going to do, was going to glorify God. And so it, it's, it's part of that mystery and that purpose that God has, even when we don't understand. <clears throat> why, that in, in our understanding, our, our prayers were answered. But in God's understanding, there was a purpose. And that purpose was greater than anything we could imagine. Right. And he is mm -hmm. glorified. And, he, and when we do discover his purpose, then we are, we, we, it is beyond our, our wanting what his answer is to that. But just because we don't know, or just because you know, it looks like he hasn't answered, does not mean that it, that it isn't. And he is glorified. Exactly. And the way that this shakes out, think about it. The prayer of Mary and Martha was answered. <laughs> they expected it to be answered in a certain way. Like, well, we're not used to seeing people rise from the dead, so they aren't, that's not part of the prayer categories. It's, O Lord, heal Lazarus. But when you get Lazarus back healthy, but he has to go through a little detour being in a grave for four days, uh, not only does Lazarus come out healed and healthy, God is remarkably glorified by what happened. Even if you 
think back to uh, John chapter 9, the account of the man who was born blind. And the theology of the time was when bad things happen to people, it's because, directly because someone sinned. Directly. Now, the only question in that theological framework is, who's the one who sinned? So you find Jesus' disciples asking, okay, well, who sinned? Was it the parents or was it the kid? Now, you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, kid is born blind, how could the kid sin? I don't have any examples from Jewish thought of the time as to how somebody actually could pull off sinning in your mom's womb. I, I don't know. I, I, I literally don't know. But they, that was one of their categories for thinking. So, okay, who was it? The kid or the parents? And it's like, okay, it's A or B. And Jesus is saying, mm, false dichotomy. It's C. This happened so that God may be glorified. Now, as you read through the account, you understand the man is an adult. So this blindness that he had from the moment of his birth for all those many years, it's there because God would eventually be glorified by it. Seems counterintuitive to us. And as we're going to talk about some other counterintuitive examples of God's glory working out. But if you think about it, if someone is ill or blind for that number of years and then gets their sight back, isn't God glorified by something like that? Tremendously glorified. Uh, any other questions or comments before we move on? Yes, Jim. I was just pondering your thing about the inappropriate prayer that wouldn't happen of the wild weekend with the girl or winning the lottery. The reality is, is, is uh, there's more of a chance that that would happen than your prayer to ask uh, a terminal cancer person to be healed. And so that could happen in someone's life, and now they have a new platform to stand out of answering prayer. And the gospel they just spread because what good pain they got through prayer. Right. Perfectly done. No, well, exactly. And I guess what I was trying to go with that is if when you're praying in Jesus' name, if you think that you're praying through the mouth of Christ, there are some things which to our ears are screamingly obviously wrong to pray for. However, just as we've been discussing, there are areas in which we don't know how God is going to answer, and we sense that we need to pray, but we don't see answers in the way that we expect to see them, oftentimes. For whatever reason, God's doing this for his glory, and that's part of the trust and faith that God isn't responding to us. We're responding to him. We're trusting that his way of bringing this out is actually going to be the right and best way. Julie? Yeah, a lot of times when we pray, we don't pray, God, do whatever it takes to bring glory to your name. We'll say, do whatever it takes to give me ease or lessen the discomfort. And, but then we look back, and I think you talked about this a few weeks ago, how the apostles were praying, and it was bring glory to your name, bring glory to your name. And a lot of them end up losing their lives in the answer to that prayer. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I think of an example, one other place I want to go with this before we move on, is what happens if you have a prayer that is, I'm trying to stay away from some buzzwords that we hear nowadays, but something that is so different, so over the top, no, I'm sorry, I've got to use the word audacious, I know other people have used it in odd contexts, but let's say you have a prayer that you're, you're seeing something which humanly there's no way of pulling off what you want to do, but you're trusting God that he's somehow going to do it. I think of the example of a man named George Mueller from the uh, 19th century. George Mueller ran an orphanage for children, I think it was in England, for well over 20 years. And he prayed every day that the Lord would allow him to do this, to bring in the funds to do this, and to make it work. And if I remember the stats correctly, 55,000 people went through his orphanages at one time or another. And, he's, and how many of us would have a thought of a plan that says, okay, this is a big vision. It's not something that's typically being done 
but I will trust God that he is going to make this work because he will be glorified in it. His people will be helped by it. And he didn't raise funds. And he didn't raise funds. Yes, thank you for adding that. He, and he did that specifically. And he said he did that specifically for the purpose that God would be glorified by what happened in the actions with the orphanage. So in this case, you have a prayer that is so bold in the other direction. You say, Lord, give me the ability to do some, such and such. That God, in a sense, gives vision to people. Not in the sense of like a prophetic vision where Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. But I'm just saying... The way we would use vision in, I guess, modern parlance, um, the idea that there's some idea, there's some desire, there's some dream that God's put onto your heart, and that you can make it work praying to him and relying on him, and it's being done for God's glory. So, again, thank you. Thank you for all of this. Let me talk about this, how the Son is glorified by the Holy Spirit. So if you still have your Bibles open in John chapter 14, just a few pages over. Okay, John chapter 16, verses 12 through 14. The Lord Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. Let me stop for a moment. That sounds like Jesus in other passages in the gospel saying that what he hears from the Father, that's what he speaks. Now the Spirit is going to be doing the same thing. Um, he will not speak in his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring a few things I want you to note here. I'm going to interrupt myself as I do this. He, not it. Mm -hmm. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is not like the force in Star Wars right. or the emanation of whatever. The Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. <clears throat> and when he is referred to in places where it's the Holy Spirit, he, not the Holy Spirit, it. The word that's used in... Uh, In Hebrew, it's ruach. In Greek, it would be pneumata, uh, or something with that base. That is a neuter term in Greek. It would be like saying the holy wind or the holy breath. <coughs> he told me this. It violates the rules of grammar. Yes, for an important reason. Because while the term that's used to describe the Holy Spirit is in the Greek language, a neuter term, it, he has to be referred to as a he, because that's what he is. He's a he. Uh, he will not speak in his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. He, the Holy Spirit, will bring glory to me, that's to Christ, by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. So now we have another glory relationship within the Trinity, the Spirit glorifying the Son. And I think this is really important for us to know, is that not only are we to bring glory to God, but the persons of the Trinity bring glory to each other. Maybe it's something that you haven't considered in the past. But if you think about this through, it's a hard theological term to get a hold of, but the idea of eternity past, prior to the creation of all things as we know them, time, space, matter, energy, the verse that happens before Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, well, this is the before the, in the beginning. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in loving relationship with each other. Otherwise, you can't otherwise you can't say God is love. Think about this. If you have a one person, one being God, like Allah is, for example, in Islam, in order to love, you have to create. You can't already be love. You can't already exhibit love ahead of time. 
Because the only way you can have love is to create something. In the case of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are in mutual love with each other. There's this love relationship that's already there, so that when they create, they can be defined as, as John says, God is love. Sharon, you had a... This whole other room discourse is so, so full of, of, of the relationship between God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. It, it's such a, it's such a, a revelation. God, Jesus is really telling something important mm -hmm. here that he's leaving now that he's not going. But I, it, and it's this is so precious to me and important to me. Uh, and but one of the reasons is that I've had several very good and well-intentioned charismatic or Pentecostal people pray over me for, for the gift of tongues. Because for them, that was the evidence of the Holy Spirit. And they were very concerned that I only thought I was saved. I only thought I would do this. When if I didn't have the gift of tongues, and I believe that, that there are gifts for today, and I do not discount the gift of tongues, but, but I began to pray and, and say, God, am I missing something? Should Is this something I need to have that is evidence of your salvation and evidence of the Holy Spirit in me? And he brought me to this passage to show me that the work of the Holy Spirit, the evidence of the Holy Spirit, isn't that I have to give their tongues, but that I know who Jesus is. Because that's what his purpose is, to glorify the Son. And the gift of tongues doesn't evidence that. My belief my joy in who Jesus is and recognizing and wanting to know him is the evidence of the Holy Spirit. That could actually cut through a lot of um, the argumentation I've heard. I've been the recipient, I'll put it that way, of well-intentioned people who thought the same thing. I was, I was teaching one of their Bible classes one time and it's like, well, you're teaching Bible, but do you really know the Holy Spirit as in Brother Walt, you speak in tongues. No, I don't. I'm not a cessationist, which means I do believe that these gifts are still in operation today, legitimately. But there's a lot of people who are trying to illegitimately use them. But what you said would actually cut through that like a hot knife through butter. I mean, just let's put off all the other fluff and all the other nonsense. What's the work of the Holy Spirit to make Jesus known? Has the Holy Spirit made Jesus known to you? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. If he gives you tongues, dandy. He might give you some other gifts as well. Uh, you can go through a list, and I think it's 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, and the list that's given, tongues is like about fifth or sixth on the list, with the question of, do all prophesy? Do all teach? It's like, okay, no, no. Do all speak in tongues? <laughs> and the, the way the Greek is constructed the expected answer is no. I mean, it'd be like kind of going up to your kid after you think they may have done something foolish, going, you didn't do something stupid like I thought you did, did you? Okay, their answer is not going to be, oh, yeah! The expected answer is no. And that's the way the Greek is constructed for that, so that while I believe, personally, I believe that some people do have the gift of tongues legitimately, not all have it, but, again, going back, who's, what's the central point on this? It's Christ. One thing I want to point out here before we leave the Gospel of John, there's one more point I'd still like to get to with uh, Romans making this point. As Sharon was mentioning, this is part of what we've been reading, part of Jesus' upper room discourse. Jesus understands exactly what's going to be happening to him in the next 24 hours. He's having this last supper with his disciples, and I think in a very real way, in the same way that if you knew you were going to die, let's say you knew you were going to die 24 hours from now, and you're having dinner or some sort of interaction, you're at the coffee, you're at Starbucks or whatever, with the people who are closest to you, what would you be talking about? Would you maybe be talking about, hey, the NHL went their lockout last week, great, good to see you again. It might come up, maybe. You'd be sharing what's on 
your heart, the deepest things, the things you want people to remember, the legacy you want to left, have left behind. And I believe that Jesus is doing the same thing here. And note that in this upper room discourse, where he's pouring out his heart to his disciples, the nature of, his, of the Trinitarian relationship with God is really important to Christ. He finds this a joy. He delights in his Father. He delights in the Spirit. They delight in him. He wants us to know this. And yet, I think, unfortunately, for a lot of us, we tend to treat the idea of the Trinity as some theological abstract concept that, well, let the eggheads talk about it, but you know, we'll just we'll just love Jesus. Like, okay, Jesus loved the Trinity. Should we love the Trinity as well? Uh, there's a great article. I tell you what, let me can I do this? Yeah, let me go through one point, then I'll get you to the link, and then we'll end with that. We have God, excuse me, we have Christ glorifying God by accepting us. Now, I want to read both the uh, NIV and the New American Standard, because the uh, New American Standard is a little bit more literal. And it, the translation is done a little bit with a different tack, and I've got to explain both these. Otherwise, it won't, maybe it won't make sense. Okay, Romans 15, 7 from the NIV. It says, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, comma, in order to bring praise to God. Now, New American Standard reads, Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. You might see that there could be slightly different nuances in the way of understanding that. One of them would be that you, and me too, Christian believers, accept one another just like Christ did, and that in our accepting of it, we're bringing glory to God. You read through translation like the New American Standard, it could be read as, as Christ accepted us, he did so to the glory of God. If you see where that can go. I was looking at commentaries going, okay, what's the tiebreaker here? Um, and I thought the people who wrote the commentary was rather insightful that both of these ideas have floated out there on this verse. However, are they really that distinctly different? Is, are, even if you take this as Christ accepted us to the glory of God versus we should do what Christ did so that by accepting one another we bring glory to God, aren't both things happening simultaneously? Aren't both of those true at the same time? Do we bring glory to God by accepting each other as believers? Absolutely. Did Christ bring glory to God by accepting us? I think so. So this is one of these cases where I wanted to handle this properly and to let you know there have been two schools of thought about this. But where I'm going with this is you once again have this Trinitarian glory of God being passed along from one person in the Trinity to the other, or to another. And I, I wanted to leave you with this. There's an article in the recent issue of Christianity Today it's called Three is the Loveliest Number by a man named Michael Reeves out of uh, the United Kingdom. I've uh, actually stumbled across his uh, site called Theology Network about three years ago. And fortunately, Michael Reeves is getting a little bit more press here on this side of the Atlantic recently. Uh, he has a book published relatively recently called Delighting in the Trinity. And his take on this is that if this is something that brings glory to God, and it was really important to God, maybe we shouldn't treat it like just this really oddity that, eh, you know, let the theological eggheads handle it. This is something that delights our Lord Jesus, to speak in terms of giving glory to his Father, or the Spirit giving glory to Christ. If these things delight our God, should we treat them as if they're kind of like warts on our canyon, kind of walking along with big warts, kind of hide it, you know, something like that? Do we want to treat it like that? And I would say obviously the answer is no. 
The article itself is written from a, a, a wonderful perspective. It's not some theological journal article. It's, it's popularly written, and I think it really helps make the point that we shouldn't treat the Trinity as something you want to keep in the corner. Also, one last thing I'll leave you with this. slight side chart, but we'll go with that anyway. There's no other world religion that has a concept like the Trinity for its God. None. All the other world religions, you can imagine what they're like. For example, the gods of the Greeks and the Romans. Good heavens, these are horrible human beings on theological steroids. Zeus, Apollo, Hermes, or you go with the Norse gods, not much better. Odin, Loki, the constant trickster. Thor, like the, the kind of the dolt. I mean, if you see the movies, Thor is kind of cool and handsome. In uh, Norse mythology, is kind of like this dumb lumbering oxen, this huge hammer just kept beating on things. He's more like the Hulk than Thor. But well, the point is, you've got human traits that are elevated up, and you don't have that with the concept of the Trinity. People who are gathering around uh, campfires with their sheep at night in the Middle East don't come up with concepts like this on their own. This is something that has to be revealed from the outside. And I think it's one of the strongest evidences that the God who is, the God of the Bible, is who he claims he is. He's introducing ideas we normally don't think of in terms of. I'm going to leave you with that. I've thrown a lot at you, especially in these last few minutes. Thank you for bearing with me while I reboot it. Um, I don't know if there's any last questions or comments before you have to leave, so open up quickly and close just as quickly. So thank you. <laughs> God bless you all. We will see you later, and um, you have a good week. That is all for this session. The PowerPoints which I used for this class will be posted on both the Restoring the Core website as well as the School of the Solitary Place blog. Thank you for listening to this program. We can be contacted at mail at restoringthecore.com. We're on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash restoringthecore. You can also follow us on Twitter at RestoreTheCore. Our original blog is still active. It can be found at schoolofthesolitaryplace.blogspot.com. Thank you for listening. We hope you join us next time for the Lens of Glory.